The following program is sponsored by Friends of Life Outreach International. Men, when they're facing an intimidating situation, they tend to regress into adolescence, forcing the woman to become a mother to them and then getting mad at her for mothering him. Mm, that's okay. interesting. <laughs> but I know none of your audience experiences that. <laughs> Would you like to have a happy and long-lasting relationship, one built to weather any storm? Coming up on Life Today, Pastor A.R. Bernard reveals four things women want from a man. so much. Uh, thank you. Welcome. I'm James Robinson. Betty and I are thrilled to have you. A.R. Bernard is with us. This man is, in my opinion, uh, well, I think he's a gift from God. I think he's a, a miraculous uh, uh, testimony and journey. He was a part of what he referred to as a, a radical Muslim group. Came to know Christ. He has one of the most powerful churches in the country, the uh, Cultural Center in Brooklyn. And uh, I just praise God for him. I want you to welcome A.R. Bernard to life today. Would you do that? It's not good to see you. All right. You, you are going to discuss with us four things women want from a man. Now, probably the yeah. first thing they would ask you is, what do you know about what a woman wants from a man? Yeah, the audacity of me to tell women what they want. But after 44 years of marriage to the same woman, uh, and 38 years of ministry, counseling uh, couples and individuals, uh, I decided, you know what, I need to put this into some form so I can get it out there. I've been very concerned about the state of relationships, especially as we experience rapid cultural change, breakdown of old social values and social traditions that we have known for so long in our nation. It's 85% of relationships fail. That's unbelievable. 40 to 50% of first marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. And I wish that I could say that the statistics were better in the church, but unfortunately, the church is mirroring the world. We have a situation where we've gone through, and I talk about it in the book, a change in what motivates people to get married. You go back before the 1850s, before the, uh, the Industrial Revolution, and it was quite basic. A woman married a man for protection, for shelter, for provision, uh, because of the hostility that existed in, 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 in those times here in America. And if there was love involved, it was an added attraction. <laughs> By the 1850s, the Industrial Revolution comes in, and everything changes. Women are now in the workplace. They get the right to vote. They're now uh, earners within the household, and that leads right up to the 1960s. And from the 1850s to the 1960s, the motivation was love, companionship, uh, things of that nature, which is still wholesome. But with the revolutions of the 1960s, everything shifted. Then it became self-actualization, self-discovery, and that became the motivation. So people are going into marriage, and this is so true amongst the millennials, to discover themselves in the other person. You cannot resolve the identity crisis that is inward externally. 
You have to deal with it internally within yourself as an individual. So the divorce rate goes up because this is the dilemma that people are in. So I wrote the book, first of all, to give men an organized system of thought concerning women. Secondly, to give women a framework with which to make better choices in their relationship with men. And thirdly, to address some of the issues in the institution of marriage in our nation. Well, it's been out now for quite a few months. Have you found the response to be positive? I would imagine, because what I've heard it is. Are you are you getting feedback? Yeah, it's been it's 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 come in number one uh, in several categories. Interestingly enough, and what I'm excited about is the millennials. The millennials are picking up the book and reading it single as well as married. And you know, millennials, their whole orientation is quite different. But when you talk about relationship, you get everyone's attention. In what way do you say the millennials are different? How do you, when you summarize Well, millennials are, represent 85 to 90 million uh, Americans. They are the largest generation since my generation, the baby boomers. They're the most educated generation, but they're also the most disappointed generation because they come out of school, all right, having all that education, but burdened by an average of $33,000 in student loan debt. 47, 46% of millennial males live at home with their parents. 37% of millennial females live at home with their parents, and not because they're lazy, but primarily for economic reasons. And because of this depression is one of the biggest burdens that millennials carry. And they're struggling to deal with themselves, so you know they're gonna to struggle to deal with relationship with other people. Do you people. think they think that our generation made a mess of things, so now they've gotta clean it up a little bit? Uh, yeah, <laughs> to, to a degree, but they're yeah. very creative, and they're very purpose-driven. Uh, Gallup put out a study of millennials in the workplace and how they've had, they've actually transformed the workplace and how the workplace is managed and, and led. And although they look for uh, money, you know, they want to get paid, they want to get a good salary, but that's secondary to the job giving them a sense of meaning and purpose. So when they're looking for relationships, they're looking for meaning and purpose within the relationship. And if they don't find it, they move on to another relationship. Well, you know, when I looked down the table of contents and I was trying to find these four uh, things, and you, because you, you top two words, four things, so I'm looking, I'm trying to find the four things. And your first chapter is about four things. I'm sure you explained it there, and then the culture marriage. But you go down to these four things, and I want to ask you if, if this is the four things, all right? Maturity, decisiveness, consistency, and strength. Absolutely. Four things. All right, do you want to touch on any one of those in the time frame sure, we've got right I, here? Just, just, just very, grab one of them and tell us why, right. why it's uh, important. And, and, and let me say this to you, that all of the women that we interviewed for the book, after a conversation, they agreed that those four things really summarize what they were looking for. You take maturity. Uh, I cannot tell you how many women said to me in the conversation, I just wish he'd grow up. Well, what do they mean by that? That's the question, because men don't understand it. We don't, we don't get that right away, you know. Uh, but... And let me just go back very quickly to my wife. When I fit, the number one complaint that women have about men is that men don't listen. <laughs> so when I finished the manuscript, I gave it to my wife, she read it. When she finished, she called me and I said, what do you think? She looked up at me and, up at, uh, up at me and smiled and said, you've been listening. <laughs> that's, those are my credentials yeah, for the book. But then she also added, and I'm not finished with you. So I get it. <laughs> so there has to be another book, all right? But maturity does not come with age. 
it begins with the acceptance of responsibility. When a man accepts responsibility for his words, thoughts, motive, actions, and attitudes, now he's on the pathway for maturity. So you can have a man that's 60 years old and immature, and a young man, 21 years old, who has accepted responsibility, and he is mature. The second thing that women look for around the theme of maturity is decorum. She wants to know that the man that she's with knows how to conduct himself in any given circumstance or situation. Men, when they're facing an intimidating situation, they tend to regress into adolescence, forcing the woman to become a mother to them and then getting mad at her for mothering him. Mm, that's okay. interesting. <laughs> but I know none of your audience experiences that. <laughs> Decisiveness. Decisiveness is the ability to make, well, let me back up again. It's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. But we don't have that luxury as men, <laughs> all right? Decisiveness is the ability to make decisions quickly and confidently. And in order to do that, you have to have a set of values and principles that guide your decision-making process. Your values are what's most important to you, what you stand for, what you're willing to pay the price for, what you're willing to die for. Principle is a broad and basic truth that requires wisdom, judgment, and discernment. And in order for a man to develop these things, he has to do it intentionally. We don't have the luxury of God's gift that he gave to women where they know these things intuitively. You know, the the Bible says, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, which means we have the responsibility to make you a study, but it never tells you to study us because you know us, and that's the, we don't like that because you know our patterns, you know how we do things. I mean, it's just amazing. My wife knows more about me than I'm comfortable with, but so that's decisiveness, you know, uh, and and uh, consistency. You know, a woman wants to know that what a man says and does have to be in agreement. Women look for safety and security in a relationship, and that's based on trust. So when his words and his actions are consistent it allows her to feel a sense of trust in him and she feels safe and secure. She doesn't expect him to do everything right. She understands his humanity, but at the same time, there should be a degree of consistency that makes her feel secure in the relationship. The last of the four strength. Strength. Not the macho Not muscle. down at the gym all the time. No, yeah. no. The strength that I'm talking about is the strength and security that a man has in himself when he is secure in his own identity that allows him to be gentle and kind. Because when a man is strong, he can be gentle. He can be kind. The second aspect of strength is the strength that gives him the courage to live out his convictions. Because when he's a man of convictions, a woman knows that when he goes out there in the world, she can trust him because he's not going to compromise those convictions because he has the courage and strength to live them out. Y'all like what you've heard so far? We've got a lot of ladies here. I'd say probably two thirds of the audience is probably women. And he's okay? He's been listening? Is that right? <laughs> now, how, how would you summarize the conclusion? When someone gets through this, what, what do you want them to walk away with? I want them to walk away with the sense that there's hope. No matter what condition their relationship is in, no matter what they've gone through. I talk about times in our uh, marriage where, you know, I just didn't get it. 
and my wife suffered. I talk about 1984, uh, where my wife actually miscarried because I had my priorities out of whack and the marriage was under such great pressure. And I'm pastoring at the time, and we're talking about divorce. And God had to deal with me personally, deeply, and cause me to repent. So I talk about it in the book. It's a little funny, but at the same time, it's, it's very hard. That's really where we need to end up. You know, yeah. people are talking about change in America. Everybody wants change. God calls it repentance. Yeah. which is a change of mind, a change of heart, leading to a change of direction and action. I mentioned, and, and because I know that in order for any man to be what a woman wants, for the couple to be what they should be in order to have a meaningful relationship, we need a relationship with a greater source of power. We need to know the Father. Because a lot of the problems in marriages become from a fatherless situation or a dysfunctional father or a dysfunctional man in relationships. So something happened to you, you radical Muslim. Give us a little bit of what, because this is what everybody needs that says, I just can't seem to get it together. There's someone able to help us begin to put all the puzzle parts together. What happened to you? Well, I'm a product of the 60s. The 60s in America was filled with every revolution you can imagine, spiritual, social, racial, uh, civil rights movement, um, revolution in music that was coming in from all over the world. And I was a product of that. I grew up without a father, never knew my father. So I had the identity crisis that comes with growing up fatherless, but at the same time, my father was white, my mother was black, uh, a descendant of Africans who came to Panama where I was born uh, to get work in a canal zone. So I've got this social identity crisis, racial identity crisis, and I'm in a context where the identity crisis is exploding all over the place in communities of color. I was part of the desegregation program where they bust uh, us out to white schools in order to desegregate them. So I felt being an experiment, but I was able to adapt to that reality and grow through it. So by the end of the 60s, I had made a decision that I wanted to be socially uh, involved. And I was always socially aware, politically aware, the war in Vietnam, my problems with the military industrial complex that the war was feeding. I had friends who died in the war, some who came back maimed, some who came back strung out on heroin, you know. So I knew that something had to change. So the Nation of Islam presented order, strength, identity, those things that as a young man I needed. So I got involved in the Nation of Islam from 1970 to 1975. Radical Muslim movement. But I didn't find God, nor did I buy into the notion that the white race was the devil. I understood that it was the system, and the system is what had to change. So I didn't convert fully to the theology of the nation, even though I bought into the social identity. And after a while, I understood it as what it was. See, uh, Professor C. Eric Lincoln, a friend of mine before he died, he wrote the definitive work on the nation of Islam. And it had to be understood as not a religion, but a social protest against America's failure to deal with the socioeconomic plight of blacks in this country and the Christian church's failure to do the same as well. So I, I, I was there, and I was going in a direction to really take on this radical persona to push revolutionary change in, in the United States. At the same time, I was a banker. I was a banker from 1970 to 1979. And in 1974, uh, God sends, oh, I could say God sends now, because I understand it, but a young lady came 
to work for me as a secretary. She was a Pentecostal woman. And I was always cerebral, studied and read, and I would ask her questions. She'd go back to her pastor and ask him, and finally he said, look, you need to stop talking to this guy because he's going to confuse you. <laughs> and what tormented me, and I use the word tormented specifically, was her simple childlike faith in this Jesus. Jesus to me was one of the prophets in a long line of prophets, but not God incarnate. That I could not embrace. Not only that, Christianity was the religion of the oppressor. So how could I accept something that was a, an imperialist tool to oppress me and people like me? So she finally invited me to a meeting where a guy named Nicky Cruz was giving his testimony, his story. And I'm using the language now. No, I'm he's totally been here. He's been here. He's a friend because I'm close yeah. to David Wilkes. So, I, I, so. I, I, I went to the meeting. My wife came with me. And he shared his story in, in broken English. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm overwhelmed. And I start weeping. And I hear two things. Number one, I'm the God that you're looking for. I knew intuitively that it was Christ. I just knew it. I can't explain it. I knew it. It was him. And the second thing I heard was, I and my word are one, which turned me away from the pictures, paintings, images, and movies of the white Jesus, the Asian Jesus, the Indian Jesus, and it took me to Scripture. And Scripture became the Word to me, and Christ became the Word. So I went up to the, uh, to the platform. Nikki said, do you want me to pray for you? I said, yeah, you know, pray for me. And he began praying. I felt like somebody put a blowtorch to my chest and blew a hole. I couldn't stop weeping. I walked to the back. My, my secretary and her husband was there, and she came down. She, she looked at me, and I'm trying to straighten myself out. She said, did you get it? Did you? I had no idea what I was supposed to get. But she said, did you get it? Did you get it? So I said, something happened to me up there, something Praise deep God. and very profound. So she, they hand me a book by a guy named Merlin Carruthers called Prison to Praise. Mm. I read it in one hour. Mm. And within 10 days, I was invited to go to a prayer meeting. I went there, and I remembered the book said, the Hallelujah is the highest praise that you can give to God. So I started saying it. And boy, all of a sudden, things started happening to me <laughs> physically, <laughs> emotionally. And I realized that that moment, I encountered God's Holy yeah, Spirit. wonderful. And that conversion took place deeply and profoundly. Don't and you say praise God. AR, I love you, buddy. I just, I just thank God for you. This book is phenomenal. So it's in the bookstores. You can go online and get it. I think it's in Walmart. I think it's in the discount houses. I mean, it ought to be there because it's great. And I'll tell you what, AR, we're going to try to give water not only to people who need a water well, but we're actually going to be able to give water to people that's clean where you can't get a drilling rig in. It's one of the most exciting things that I've ever been able to share. And by the way, you help us give a cup of water. You help us give a family fresh water. We'll send you the book just to say thank you. I Amen. want you to look in. I want you to see something that I think is going to really stir your heart, uh, asking a question about why. Watch closely. I take my mother's hand and I walk with her for miles to find water to drink. And I ask, why, Mama? I watch as she dips her cup into the filthy water that we share with the dirty animals. And again, I ask, why, Mama? 
I watch as my brothers and sisters one by one become ill after drinking our water, and still I ask, why, Mama? I look upon my brother's grave and watch my mother cry, and I am afraid to ask, am I next, Mama? Our children look to us to make sense of what they see. Far too many mothers around the world must carry the burden of knowing they have no other option than to give contaminated water to those most precious to them, their own children. They must daily live with the knowledge that by their own hands, they may cause their children to grow ill and possibly die. It's not a matter of if, but of when. For many of us who look upon this dilemma, we must also ask ourselves, when will we help stop this cycle of illness and death? If not now, then when? Well, it's going to be when, because I'm telling you that I'm talking to people right now, all over the world, not just here in the United States or North America, but all over the world, who want to be, in the truest sense of the word, the hands of Jesus, to put God's caring arms around a suffering world, and Jesus said, you just give a cup of water. In my name, you won't lose your reward. And don't start thinking about riches and resources. I want you to think about the reward of knowing you did something that changed someone's life and that you did something that pleased your Father who has poured out blessings upon us and wants to pour blessings out through us. So what I'm asking you to do, and Betty, I'm, I've never been so excited. We, we're going to drill, with your help, water wells. The missionaries have told us that we're facing several crisis situations that we have to, I'm talking about in rapid order, begin drilling and drill. It's like emergency wells, 188 immediately, which means we're going to have a surge of support. But Betty, we've also found, and you know most of the places where we drill, we know there's water subsurface because they, they dig boreholes that become rapidly contaminated, but we know the water's there. So we're able to drill and encase it and protect it and give them a manual pump so they can get the water. But we've got many areas where the terrain does not allow us to take in a drilling rig. One of those areas that's in crisis right now is Burundi. And in Burundi, they have got areas where they desperately need water in the terrain that we can't get to. Now, here's what's happened. Someone, I think it's, any, you know, people creating the image of God can meet any need. It's amazing what we can do. There is a filter that works like dialysis. And it is a filter that you simply put with a, a hose out of a five-gallon container. And it filters the water by gravity. You don't have to have any power source, just gravity feed. And it goes into glasses, cups, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like a miracle gift from God. And right now, those have been made available, three of those filter systems for $100. They're just over $33 a piece. That means three families, $100. Now, here's what I want you to think about. When we drill water wells, many of you have done, because you've felt a commitment, leadership of the Lord, you've done what we started years ago to do. We said, God, we want to drill a well every time the missionaries call for it. And God has enabled us to do that. We started back when they were 3,600, moved to 4,800. It was a little bit of a challenge. Then we went twice a year to give the emphasis. We said, God, help us. Many have joined, and you're able to give a well. Some of you have a prayer group that does it. Some of you have a business that does it. Couples do it. Thank God if you can do that. And others, Betty, will give 1,200, pray three join, 2,400 and pray another joins. So do that because we really need some emergency support right now. But think about it. You can give three families water for a $100 gift, filtered clean water. I mean, it's miraculous what it does. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Right now, very prayerfully under the leadership of the Lord, you give what God put on your heart. 
you're giving water for life, the missionary is going to tell them about the water of life. It's going to be the love of God that motivates the gift, enables the missionaries to deliver the message, not just in word, but in deed. So if you can help us, I'm asking you right now to go to the website that you see right there on the screen or dial the number that's there, always a prayer line. And right now for you, it's an answer to prayer line. That's what it is. I want you to take your bank card and make the largest gift you can. You can give a well or a portion of a well, please do so. You can give the $100 to uh, provide three families with the filter system. Many of our gifts, Betty, most of the support comes from people who give $48 or $144. $48, 10 people basically water the rest of their life with the water well. 144, 30 people the rest of their lives. There's a level at which you can support. We have some beautiful gifts that we're going to be sending you. Sheila's book, the beautiful canvas, no greater name, and the beautiful determined eagle bronze. So we want to say thank you, but you're going to be given the greatest gift. You're giving the gift of life. Right now, go online, dial the number, use your bank card like a check. Thank you for sharing life. Every day, children living in extreme poverty are forced to make a dreadful choice. Drink filthy, polluted water filled with deadly disease or die from thirst. No child should ever be faced with this decision. Our teams have recently identified 188 remote villages in Southern Africa where children are suffering from contaminated, disease-ridden water. The situation is desperate. They need clean, disease-free water immediately. With your gift today, you can help drill fresh water wells in remote villages across seven African nations. Your gift of $24 will provide clean water for five people. A gift of $48 will provide for 10. $72 provides for 15 people. And $144 will help provide fresh, disease-free water for 30 people for a lifetime. With your gift, we'll send you Sheila Walsh's devotional, Five Minutes with Jesus, a fresh infusion of joy to help you experience a deeper connection with God. Please consider an additional gift of $100 to help provide three families with water filtration kits in emergency areas where our rigs cannot reach, and you may request our No Greater Name canvas print. Finally, please consider a gift of $1,200 to help provide water for 250 people, or a gift of $4,800 to help sponsor a complete well, and you may request our beautiful new hand-painted Determined Eagle bronze sculpture. Please call, write, or make your gift online today. We want to say thank you, and you're going to receive Sheila Walsh's book. I, uh, I want you, if you possibly can, I not only want you to get this beautiful bronze, I want you to be a determined eagle, determined to soar on the turbulence of the times and the challenges of the day. We're lifted by the mighty power of God. You help us provide water, and you would like to have Dr. Bernard's book, Four Things Women Want from a Man. Women approved it. It's good stuff. Would you join us saying thanks? By the way, we'll say thank you with this book too if you want it. Say thanks to AR. Love you, buddy. Thank God you. bless you in Brooklyn. God bless your incredible ministry. God bless America. Thank you for watching. Thanks for your help.
In his new book, Living Amazed, James Robison shares how divine encounters can change your life. Living Amazed, coming soon to online and retail bookstores. Tomorrow, pastor, speaker, and author Mark Gungor tells you to treat him like a dog. And you pick up the dog and you hug the dog. Right? Life Today is made possible by the supporters of Life Outreach International. Your gift will be used exclusively for the exempt purposes of life. The ministry features specific outreaches as examples of the programs it supports and conducts. Gifts are considered to be without restriction as to use unless explicitly stipulated by the donor. The ministry is a member of the ECFA.